we've been going through this series called God's Stories, and what we've done is we've taken um, uh, a book, uh, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, and each week we're giving a summary. But not just a summary, but we're trying to help you understand that, you know, these old stories in the, in the Old Testament, uh, sometimes we read them and it seems irrelevant, or sometimes it just seems like a lot of historical information or like fabricated stories, like all these fables and myths. But the reality is that these were real stories, and they have, they have meaning for us today as well. And we looked at Genesis, and the Genesis was a story of God creating a people for himself. And the original human beings, right, Adam and Eve, uh, they fell astray from that plan, but God had a plan to redeem that. And so the, the, the plan went, uh, you know, his plan to redeem people was implemented in Genesis. And you see Abraham, Abraham was the one that God chose. And, and through uh, Abraham, God was going to actually build a nation to actually bring the rest of the world back to him. So by the time you get to the end of Genesis, uh, um, you've got a little tiny family of about about 75 people, all right? So Genesis takes, Genesis takes us through the history of the world, uh, and at the end of Genesis, you got a family of about 75 people, all right? And so you go from Genesis to, what's the next book, anybody? Exodus, right? So you go from Genesis to Exodus, and by the time you get to Exodus, uh, this little family of 75 people, they used to live in what we call today the Levant, or kind of the Palestine. Um, uh, they went down to Egypt, because of a famine, and uh, for four generations, almost close to 400 years, that little family of 75 uh, people grew to almost a million people, all right? And so if you study um, um, geography of the Middle East, they settled in the land of Goshen, which is kind of the northeastern part of Africa or Egypt, and um, they flourished. They flourished quite well, actually. Uh, so what happened was that, um, but because they flourished, the uh, government wanted to squash them uh, because they started to become the affluent uh, of the uh, of the uh, area. And so in the book of Exodus, you see the story of actually the Pharaoh beginning to squash these people, and so they become slaves, right? So they become slaves for several, several hundred, or uh, for a few hundred years, uh, and so what happens is in the Exodus, they leave Egypt because God had promised them that they're going to have their own land. And we're going to dig into that a little bit today. Uh, but so God had promised them that they were going to have their own, uh, promised them that they were going to have their own land. So they left Egypt. And so in the midst of leaving Egypt, he's actually describing to them who you are, right? giving them their, ide- their den- identity as people. And so uh, the book of Leviticus is spent, you know, and if you've ever read Leviticus, and Mike did a fantastic job at talking about how the book of Leviticus is actually about the power and the presence of God among people, all right? And so that's why you have the tabernacle. And so Leviticus takes you all through these details about why it's important for you to pay attention to what God wants, because in the midst of those details is the power and the presence of God. Right. So that's the book of Leviticus. And so you see a lot of people being appointed to do things. And it makes me appreciate our setup team every Sunday morning because you guys did the same thing that uh, the people, the Levites did. You set up the place of worship so that the people of God could worship, right? And so what happens is this. They leave Egypt, and by the time you get to the book of Numbers, they're into the land of Canaan, what we call today modern-day the, the Levant, right? Uh, what we call, uh, like, Palestine, that area. They enter into Palestine, Canaan, and they're about two years into their journey, all right? So by the time you get to the book of Numbers, they're about two years into their journey into the desert, 
So at this point, what happened was that they had been coached who you are going to be as a people so that by the time you go into this land, you know how to set up a society, you know how to set up um, uh, worship, you know how to treat neighbors, you know how to treat foreigners. They have been coached for those two years to, on how to be a people, how to be a light to people. And so by the time you get to numbers, they're ready to go. They're ready to go. They're supposed to go in and, and take the land. However, as you read the book of Numbers, this is what you discover. The book of Numbers is a story of how a destiny gets delayed. How the plans are, you're gung-ho, and all of a sudden, ah, wait, stop. There's, there's, a, there's a pause in the plan. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your life, but when you're really gung-ho about something, it's like, nope, pause. you got to wait. 38 years, actually, you have to wait. And so it's the record of why Israel wanders the wilderness for 40 years instead of immediately entering into the land that was promised for them. Uh, Canaan was a land bridge, and you should know this, um, even today, but especially then, Canaan was a land bridge between the superpowers of the inhabited world, right? So Canaan, that little strip, why? Why was that little strip so important? Because it connected the superpowers in Africa to the superpowers in Asia and Europe, right? And so that little strip of land, even today, is so contested because that was the only way you were going to go from Africa to Europe to Asia and vice versa. That if you controlled the passageway, then you could control the rest of the world, right? And so um, that's the reason why God says, that's where I'm placing you, you lowly people who have no, like, resources and you have no leader. Like, I'm going to place you there to be a lampstand. Some call it a lampstand. Others would call it a hellhole. And sometimes God calls his people to be a light in hellholes. And that's the story of Numbers. So naturally, as we were reading the passage before, you, you realize how, why, why, they're so, why they're so scared. They're so scared because they're in this hellhole that's like constantly being like fought over, right? And so it's in these years that uh, Israel learned how to, to be faithful, how to worship, how to set up and tear down church, how to build a civil society. Um, but have you ever, heard, you ever heard the saying, you can take me out of the ghetto, but you can't take the ghetto out of me? You ever heard that before? All right. We used to say that all the time. I'm from Detroit, so we would say, you take me out the ghetto, but you can't take the ghetto out of me. Right? Well, that's the same for Israel, because you can take them out of the slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of them. And so all throughout the, uh, the book of Numbers, uh, even though they were free from physical, economic slavery, emotional and mental slavery was their issue. They, they missed, they missed Egypt. Imagine that. They missed being slaves in Egypt because their mindset, because of their mindset, their mission and their destiny was delayed for 38 years. They were stuck in the wilderness. By the way, the Hebrew name for this book isn't numbers. It's the wilderness, just so that you, you might find it interesting. What's the wilderness for us? What's the wilderness for us? What's your wilderness? I would venture to say only a few of us have actually been to an actual desert. Anybody ever been to a desert? Like an actual desert? Okay. Not like Texas, but like, yeah. Okay. All right. A few of us. All right. Um, so you know how that feels, but many of us, almost all of us, I would venture to say, you've been to a spiritual 
desert. You've had seasons of dryness. What is the wilderness for us today? And I would say this, that wilderness for us is typically defined by a life that's devoid of God, devoid of meaning, devoid of purpose, devoid of direction. And as much as you try, you can't figure out the next step. It's this disconnection from the life that God has planned for you and what you're actually experiencing today. And this is what I love about Numbers 1, um, uh, Numbers, is it just from the outset, right from the beginning in Numbers 1-1, this is what it says in, um, in the book. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. God speaks to you even in the wilderness. Don't you love that? Even in your desert, God speaks to you. That's where Moses was, and that's where God spoke to him. That's the hope of Israel's story, is that God acts and speaks in the desert. That's the hope of your story, is that God acts and speaks in your desert as well. Now, here's the thing. Are you listening? Are you listening? If there's nothing else that you get this morning, if there's nothing, you walk away and say, that was a terrible Thanksgiving sermon. If there's nothing you get from this morning, I want you to know this. That God speaks to you in the wilderness. He is speaking to you. If if you're there right now, He's speaking to you. And if you seek Him every day, if you seek Him every day, you will know what your next step is. All right? Uh, So these stories aren't fables, they're not myths. Uh, Treating life, this is very important for us as a church, for us to learn from these stories. Because if we don't learn what God is saying to us, and we're not courageous to take the next steps, we could delay the promises that God has for for us. Think about that. We're going to get into it a little bit, but if we are not insistent on obedience to what God's calling us to do, we could be delaying the potential of who we are as a church, as a people as leaders, as a worker in the city. We could delay that, right? So today I'm entitling this, that was a long introduction, I'm sorry. Today I'm entitling this sermon, and I don't think I title every sermon. We don't title every sermon, I don't think. But today is worthy enough of titling this sermon. Uh, The sermon is called, How Not to Get Stuck in the Wilderness. How Not to Get Stuck in the Wilderness. There's three points. The first point is this. Uh, don't look down. Don't look down on daily manna. Now, this wasn't a part of our scripture that we read earlier. Uh, but I want us to help us understand the heart, the fear behind why Israel was so fearful when the spies came back and gave them this report that we can't take this land because the people are so scary. What, what's inside of their heart? And we have to look back a couple of chapters before, because in chapter 11, you actually see the motivation behind their fear, all right? Now, think about this. The Israelites are in a desert. There's about a million people they need to feed. They're about less than two years into the journey, so they don't have any cattle, all right? They're nomadic. Which means they move from place to place, so they can't plant farms. They can't plant crops. So what am I saying? They have no food, and they need to feed a million people. But... Every morning they would wake up and there would be this like mysterious kind of like seed all over the ground and they were able to use that to make cake and, uh, and bread. And, uh, the, the Hebrew word for it was manna, which if you translate it means, what is this? Like, what is this stuff? Okay. 
And so they got up in the morning and said, what is this? Let's eat it. Right. Uh, so manna was no steak and lobster. It was no steak and lobster. It, you can make bread and you can make a cake. All right. You wouldn't die if you ate this stuff. But it ain't steak and lobster. All right. The other thing about it was uh, it spoiled easily. It only lasted 24 hours. And so you couldn't store it. You couldn't store this stuff. You had to eat your meal, wake up the next morning, and like, I can imagine, it, for me, I'll be like, Daddy, I'm going to wake up 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to see how this stuff shows up on the ground. Because like, I mean, how, what, you know, where does this stuff come from? And so they would wake up and they would go out there. And it says in, the, uh, in, in Numbers 11 that it would, as the dew settled on the ground, so would the manna, right? Manna was boring. It spoiled easily. But it was the basic daily nourishment that God gave to the Israelites. It was the daily basic nourishment that God was giving to the Israelites. But this is what the Israelites thought about it. And this is Numbers 11, 4 through 6. If you have a Bible, you can uh, turn a couple of pages back. Um, but it says that the rabble, which means the rowdy people, right? The rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, all that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks. <laughs> Sounds like a VeggieTales song. The onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. They're saying, ah, oh God, we're so bored with this food. It's like my boys, like, ah, oh, rice again. <laughs> Yes, every meal, son. Yeah. Staying true to our roots. But did you catch that? I don't know if you, if you read it, but in verse 4, it says that the rabble had strong cravings. One concordance translates this phrase, they longed for dainty food. <laughs> they began comparing the manna with the extravagant foods of Egypt a country that they were slaves in. They compared God's provision to the buffets that the slave masters were feasting on. They're saying God is so unfair because I deserve more. I deserve better. And this is all I get is manna. Be careful of your strong cravings because they could enslave you. You know, Russell Brand made a documentary. It's a, it's on Netflix if you want to watch it. It's called From Addiction to Recovery. Anybody seen this before? It's Russell Brand, the comedian. And he was in preparing for this documentary. He was viewing some uh, video footage of him in New York City high on heroin. He was actually, uh, he was actually, uh, uh, injecting heroin and he was watching himself and you can see this in the documentary. And this is what he says. He says, when I saw the tape a month uh, or so ago, what was surprising was that my reaction was not one of gratitude for the positive changes that I experienced. He was sober uh, 10 years. Instead, I felt envious of this earlier version of me, unencumbered by the burden of abstinence. Sobriety is boring. <laughs> He felt like he was envious of being that guy with those cravings again, right? Strong craving says that what I have isn't enough. I need more. My wife isn't exciting enough. I need something 
more exciting than her. My children, they're so average. I need them to, you know, I don't know, excel at playing the violin. Um, I looked at this Asian section over here. <laughs> I thought about you guys over there. Um, you know, my job is not exciting, so I, you know, I, I can't keep a job for more than two years because, right? And so there's this craving for more. Like I'm missing, I feel like I'm missing out on something, right? See, it's different from hunger because hunger comes from a basic need. Craving actually is a, it's a twisted way of thinking because craving comes from envy and craving comes from emptiness. You get so focused on what you don't have that you forget what you do have. So I wrote this down, my tweetable for today, is the intense need for more in order to be happy will ruin your appetite for the daily habit of simply being with God. Your intense need for more in order to be happy, that will ruin the taste of what it feels like to be with God in the morning for a couple of minutes. That's part of the reason why at 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning, many of us are already checking emails. Because we've got to build towards the more. Right? Um, now, you don't have to be a junkie or you don't have to be um, an addict to understand uh, strong cravings. Uh, many of us who are perfectionists, uh, you have to admit this, uh, that we have these strange desires as well. I say we because um, I am among you. Uh, a perfectionist waits for the perfect conditions before they start something, before they believe something, before they're willing to risk. They wait and wait and wait. They dabble here, they dabble there with commitment, but they never really jump in because why? They're waiting for the perfect time, the perfect group of people, the perfect opportunity. And they always think that the next thing might be better, and so they wait for the next thing. And so with that kind of thinking, you're never present. Like you never fully contribute. It doesn't help when you've got ADD and somebody's there in front of you and you're never really into the conversation because you really don't like that person as much because you could be talking to the person who you really like who's over there having this conversation and you're doing this weird thing. Or maybe I just do it. Ola, you do it too because you're smiling. Uh, and so you're doing this thing in your head and you can't be present with what's in front of you because you're always thinking about the next thing. And so it's just, it's really bad to be like that because in some ways, like, um, you're really condescending to people in your heart when, when, when you treat them that way. And so what happens is that we, uh, as perfectionists, when we behave that way because we're waiting for the next thing or we're looking for the next best opportunity, what happens is that we actually underestimate I'm not getting emotional, it's my allergies. We actually underestimate the manna, the thing that God has for you right now. That's the important thing. We're waiting for steak and lobster, and God said, nope, rice will do for you today. Have your bagel, bagel. Manna is what you need for today. Manna is what you need for today. Manna is daily nourishment from God. Sometimes it's simple. Sometimes it's boring. But it's what you need. And you need it every day. Manna is given to you today. Manna is the life that you're living now. 
You have to eat the manna. You have to pay attention to the life that's in front of you, to the people that are in front of you. You have to ignore the strong cravings. Because if you don't eat the manna, you won't be ready for the meat. There's something about eating what God's given to you that will actually prepare your digestive system. Now, I'm, I'm like descending into the slump of like uh, analogies, but there's something about eating the, man, the manna first in order to build up your digestive system for the meat. Some of us are just so, we don't want the basics of the Bible or the basics of Christianity. We want the deeper things of God. God is saying, you can't even pray for like five minutes without getting distracted. Maybe you should start there before you start talking about healing people on the street or before you start talking about systematic theology. Why don't you try reading through Third John at least? <laughs> it's got 15 sentences in it. Right. Digest the manna. God will give you meat. And Jesus says this in a different principle. He actually says that those who are faithful with little will be given much. That if you're faithful with the little things in front of you. Dads, if you're faithful with your children in front of you, that influence will increase. Your influence will increase. At work, if you're, you're just like, let's say you're overseeing, like, I don't know. I don't know what you do for work. Let's say you're overseeing three coffee machines at work, okay? <laughs> Jesus' principle is this, that if you're faithful in the little things, that doesn't mean that your boss is going to give you more responsibility. But in God's eyes, he says, you're a person of character. I can invest in a person. I can invest into a person of character. If he's faithful over little, I can trust him with much more. Right. So, you want to get unstuck? Three things, real quick. I've said them already. Number one is eat your manna. Right. It's like think every time you think eat your Wheaties, you should actually think eat your manna, which means you celebrate the goodness of the things that God's given to you already. All right. When you do that, secondly, what happens is that by doing that, you will actually begin to starve the cravings. You know, you, you, you detox yourselves from the, the rich foods. And so your cravings that are so strong, that are pulling at you, that are trying to pull you into the future that it doesn't exist yet, those cravings begin to die down. And thirdly, here's the big benefit. When the cravings begin to die down, then you will finally leave, you will finally leave Egypt behind you. You will no longer think like a slave. When you eat the daily manna that God provides you, you'll stop thinking like, ah, oh, I miss it when. All, all that, that kind of thinking goes away. All right. <clears throat> so act on what God is giving you today, and it will change your thinking. And that's our, our second point for today, is uh, how do you get unstuck out of the wilderness? Stop thinking like a grasshopper. All right. Um, this is the passage for today. It reminds me of this uh, uh, TV show with David Carradine. Do you guys remember uh, it was called uh, Kung Fu? What was it? Was it called Kung Fu? Right. And so he was training this guy, and he was called Little Grasshopper. Remember that? Oh, Little Grasshopper. <laughs> okay. So uh, stop thinking like the Little Grasshopper. Well, 
so we saw from this passage that uh, the 10 spies came back and they were like, oh, we were so small. Like when we looked at us, like he looked like a grasshopper. He looked like a grasshopper. We just wanted to hop away, right? And then everybody else saw us like a grasshopper. This is the thinking that they had. All right, before we jump into that, I thought it was worthy of us asking the question, why are they going to Canaan anyways, all right? Why are they scouting out the land? So Moses actually says, the 12 of you, you guys scout out the land, but why? Why are they doing that? In short, be careful how they say this, in short, they're actually preparing to wage war against the nations of Canaan. Yes, they will plunder the land. And yes, God does command this. So the question that arises uh, with many people, and myself included at one point, is how could a good God command war and the death of so many people? Like, how, how could God do that? Right? He's supposed to be good. I don't know if there's like one satisfying answer that I can give to you in three minutes. There isn't. Uh, but what I want to do is help us think through that question a little bit, and I want to try to pose a question that I think it might be a little bit better than that one. Um, and then we'll move on to the rest of this passage. <clears throat> uh, five quick things about this question. Uh, why would a good God allow uh, war or command war in the deaths of many people? Number one thing is this, that uh, God takes idol worship very seriously. And so uh, we're not talking about religious pluralism. You know, let the synagogue over here, let the mosque over here, let the church build here. We're not just talking about that. Um, idol worship in these times uh, included oftentimes and many times human sacrifice. And so idol worship was an abomination to God, and it was a degradation to humanity. In particular, women and children. All right? In particular, because of, because of fertility cults. It was an abomination. That's the first thing. Secondly is this. The Canaanites were not random people. They were actually the cousins of Israel. If you study their lineage, their heritage, they too used to worship Yahweh. They too used to worship the one true God, but this, somewhere along the way they fell away. All right? And so they fell away towards uh, idol, uh, idol worship, and they were spreading idol worship all over that part of the world. So way before Numbers in Genesis 15 and 16, when God is talking to Abraham, God is actually prophesying to Abraham, and he's saying that Israel will own the land of Canaan, but not for four centuries. Four more centuries, he says. Because why? And it says this in Genesis 15, 16. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And what, is, what does God mean by this? It means this, that these people are rebelling like crazy, but God is patiently waiting for four more generations before he does something about it. All right? And so he's saying, I'm going to wait four more generations to see if they repent. And then you can go into the land. All right? Here's the third thing. Guess what happens? They don't repent. The Canaanites don't repent. They actually grow in their idol worship. And so their cousin, Israel, is actually a tool for God's judgment. Right? They got no beef with these guys. But God is using them as a tool for the judgment. You got to remember that God sees the beginning from the end. And so when he makes a judgment, it's because he knows the final outcome. If God commanded war on these nations... It was only because Israel was a tool. It was God in these nations and not Israel against these nations. <clears throat> so had Canaan repented, think about this. If Canaan repented from idol worship within those 400 years, they might have shared in Israel's kingdom with them. But that's not the story. 
they didn't repent. Which, fourthly, is this, um, that God wasn't commanding anything on Canaan that he wouldn't have commanded on Israel. All right? Because later you see that Israel also falls into idol worship, and God uses other nations to punish Israel. So he wasn't doing something to Canaan that he wouldn't do to his own chosen people. It doesn't make it feel better, but I'm just saying God is fair in that regards, I guess. All right. And fifth, fifthly, is this, it's hard to understand the wars in the first part of the Bible if you don't understand the outcome of the rest of the Bible. And in some ways, the outcome of the rest of the Bible helps to, to interpret why these wars were so important. Right? These events actually led up to the rescue of the rest of humanity. Right? So it's kind of like with that in mind that I would ask a better question. And the better question for me uh, would be this. What would happen if the idol-worshiping Canaanites, what if they ruled over the world? What if they ruled over Israel? What would history look like? There would be no Ten Commandments, which means, if you study history, there would be no Western society with the morals to make the judgments that we're actually making with this original question. We can only ask this question is because we live in a society that's based off of Judeo-Christian values that ask these questions about fairness and rights. We wouldn't have that if the Canaanites took over, right? And so um, here's what one comment, I'll be done with this point, uh, but here's what one uh, commentary says about how to understand numbers and Joshua and judges and all these wars, right? He says this, let's not assume that if we had been born in this ancient era that we would have been so much more enlightened than everyone else. We should realize that we have the advantage of living in a society deeply influenced by the Ten Commandments and other biblical influences on our civilization, So when we read these ancient men and women, we need to humbly remind ourselves that our inner natures and our hearts are not fundamentally better than theirs were. Does that make sense? We're the same. We're the same as them. We're we're not better. We're the same. So um, we can talk more about that, but uh, uh, I want to move us forward and, and help us to understand with that lens, the 12 spies, they're looking into the land of Canaan. They're not warriors. And God is saying, now you go, you go and you pick a fight with them, right? Your task is to reform the unreformable or else drive them out. What do you do? What would you do? Well, the, the 10 of them the ten of the, the ten out of the twelve spies, they actually they're shaking in their boots. They actually wet their pants. I didn't say that, but that's my version. And it says that we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we seem like that to them. One guy says, No, we can do it. We can do it. Joshua also joins that one voice and says, We can do it. But the ten of them is like, we can't do it. There's no way. Fear, excuses, self-doubt. Self-loathing, grasshopper thinking. They're thinking to themselves, we're brick makers, we're not warriors, we're slaves, we're not heroes. We belong in Egypt. And grasshopper thinking happens when you don't remind your fears what God has commanded you to do. And when your fears get larger than what you remember God has told you to do, that leads to grasshopper thinking. Grasshoppers hop away when the situation gets tough. 
That's what they want to do. Courageous people deal with fear and they take action. You know, uh, in my uh, minimal experience as a leader and before in, in technology and now in, in Christian ministry, I've learned one thing about fear. And this is what I've learned. That large amounts of fear usually indicates large amounts of pride. When I am fearful the most, it's because I'm the most prideful. Because I... I'm in charge. I'm responsible. I don't want to fail. I'm in control. I'm not gifted enough. I don't want to blow it. You see my pattern here? When I'm most fearful, it's because I'm at the center of this. God's not at the center of it. And so if you find yourself like dealing with a lot of fear... You almost have to ask yourself the question, is it because I'm at the center of everything that I'm doing right now? Because if I am, then it makes sense for me to be fearful. And this is what you find in this story, is that pride is actually a silent promise killer. That pride in your life will actually get real close to destroying the promises that God has for you. If there's one thing that could destroy what God is doing inside of you, if there's anything that could do that, it would be pride. Because pride says, my reputation depends on it. I don't want to fail, so I won't start. I don't want to try. I don't want people to look down on me. But it's worse than that, because actually pride is like panic as well. And so usually when you're living in fear or in pride, you begin to recruit other people to think the way that you think, right? And this is what happens when, when there's an epidemic of fear. Uh, you need to convince everybody else that this was a bad idea. This was a bad idea. We need to, we need to slow down. We better stop, right? And this happens all the time in a team environment. If you work in a team environment at work, you know that it takes one negative person, one negative person to ruin the project, right? I see some of you guys amening out there. <laughs> Hopefully you're not that guy. It takes one guy who just says, you want, well, I don't want to do it. I think this is stupid. And it kills the whole moment. It kills all the momentum. Right. If you read the next chapter, um, uh, Numbers 14, this is, this is what happens. How pride actually leads to panic says that all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a different leader for us and go back to Egypt. Wait, but God says, move forward. And they're thinking, who wants to go back? This was the, this was the moment that sealed the deal. God says to them, guess what? You just bought yourself 38 years in the desert. Some of us are going the long way about doing God's will in our lives. Not because of fear, but because of pride. And there's this funny thing about fear, because fear does something that's actually very beneficial. Fear is like heat. 
and it, it, it wears on you and it burns on you. That it reveals what's actually at the core of who you are. Fear does that. And you, there's two things that usually you'll find at the core of who you are. One, fear can burn the exteriors off of you and find out that, you know what, God is at the core of this person. And they have a very positive, encouraging response. But fear has this other way of like showing pride inside of people. And fear will burn at that person. And, and you'll see that when there's fear and the cracks begin to show, that person is all about themselves. They're afraid to move forward. They're afraid to join you. They're afraid to do things because they're in it for themselves. The only way to remove grasshopper thinking, the only way to remove grasshopper thinking is to remove you. <laughs> like, not, don't kill yourself. The only way to remove grasshopper thinking is to remove you from the center. You can't be in the center. There's too much pressure to be in the center. You need somebody else to drive the mission of your life. You need something stronger than you to drive the mission. You need something stronger than you to be the core of who you are. <clears throat> um, it, I do this because uh, I'm, I'm a pretty nervous person, So, uh, but I do this uh, a lot. Uh, in times of panic, in times when I'm in a wilderness season or I'm anxious or I'm afraid, uh, which is more often than not actually, uh, in those moments, I, I do this because everything gets foggy, right? When you're in the wilderness and you're, and you're trying to figure out life and everything seems foggy and you don't know what's the right decision and you feel like uh, you're getting paralyzed, this is what I do. I remember the most basic thing that I know to be true. What is the most basic thing I know to be true about life? And usually these are my top three, all right? These are my top three. I retrace my thought pattern back to the three things that I know to be true. Number one, I know Linda loves me. That's so basic. Number two is this. I know I love my sons. And number three is this. I know, even though I can't feel it, I know that God is good. That doesn't give me a strategy out. That doesn't give me the next door to be open. That doesn't make people better or nicer. But my mind begins to settle on the basic truths that I know. I retrace my steps back out of the wilderness. Sometimes the only truth that you'll be ever, you'll, you'll know in the desert is this. And you won't feel this, but you have to know this. God loves you. In the desert times, that will be the only truth that can anchor you. God loves you. You may feel lost, but God loves you. It's the only way to overcome grasshopper thinking. It's the only way to overcome fear. You need to know that God loves you. These are truths. These are, these are truths that are tested. These are truths that the Bible talks about. God loves you. God will provide for you. God is there for you. And you have to anchor your thoughts into these truths. 
You have to command your fears based off of these truths. No, I'm not insufficient. No, I'm not, um, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, left alone. I'm not alone because God truly cares for me. God truly loves me. And when you do this, sometimes you'll sound like a crazy person because you'll look in the mirror and you say, don't you know? Don't you know that God loves you? Don't you know that God is for you? God is not against you. Don't you know that this wilderness period is not for your, uh, not, not to tear you down, but it's to build you up? And that's how you begin to speak truth into, that's how you lead yourself out of the desert. The last point is this, is the way out of the desert is to be led out of there by God's word. It's God's word that will gently lead you out of the desert. And we see this actually not here immediately, but you see this with the story of Jesus. And you know that in, 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 in the story of Jesus, what happens is that before he starts any kind of ministry, before he does anything significant, before he does a miracle, God leads him through a 40-day desert period. Jesus walks a physical desert for 40 days. And he's tested in these three ways. Think about this, all right? The first way that he's tested is to turn rock into bread. It's a manna versus strong cravings test. The second way he's tested is to jump off the temple uh, and see if God will save you. Prove that God is your protector. That's the grasshopper test. The third way that, there, uh, that Jesus is tested is Satan says, if you bow down to me, I'll give you everything. And it's a test of pride. Can you do this yourself? I can do this myself. I don't have to go through pain and suffering. I can do this myself. Same, the same three tests that Israel went through, Jesus himself faced in the desert, in his own desert. His response was different, though. Each time he was tested, what did he do? He remembered the word of God. There is actually one point where he actually says to Satan, he says, you know what? I don't live by bread. I live by every word that comes from the mouth of God the Father. That's my manna. That's what keeps me alive. Jesus was physically tired. He was mentally, emotionally drained. Spiritually, he was tired. But he knew his way out was to trust in the word of God. Trust in the goodness of God. Here's the thing. Um, uh, ben, we'll, you guys can come up. Here's the thing about... Uh, Jesus in the desert that you don't realize that it's hard to realize at first is that he's in the desert experiencing this test but later on he actually says this later on he actually says to many other people he says I, I am I am the bread of life I am the manna I, you need to eat of me you need to eat of me in order to have life, Jesus says. In order to sustain you through your moments, you need to have constant and continuous communion with me. You must eat me. And it sounds crazy. The first, first uh, century uh, uh, people thought that uh, Christians were actually, uh, uh, what's the word when you eat human beings? Cannibals. <laughs> because of Jesus' teaching in John 8. He wasn't saying eat his flesh, although that's what he said literally. He didn't mean that literally. He was saying this, you need to have daily 
encounters with God. Your deserts are too strong. Your wilderness, you, you will be lost forever if you don't have daily encounters with God. And so Jesus goes through the temptation. He overcomes it. He's a true Israel. Jesus is like Caleb who says, you can do it. We can do this. You can overcome. You can receive God's promises. You can become the person God's called you to be. You can do this. He is like Caleb. He is championing you. Because he says, I've done it. I've been through the seasons. I know what it means to cling on to nothing else but the Word of God. And that's what the invitation of numbers is for us. We'll see that the, the first generation Israelites, they forfeited their, uh, their ability to go into the promised land. The promise for them was delayed. But God wasn't done. God wasn't done with Israel. And He's absolutely not done with you. He's absolutely not done with you. Next week, we'll actually see that they actually do enter the promised land. And they actually do take the next step in fulfilling God's mission for their lives. But we're going to approach and we're going to take communion together. And I want you to think about Jesus' words when he says, I am the bread of life, that you must eat of me in order to have eternal life. What does that mean for you? What does it mean that Jesus also knows the desert period? He also knows the wandering in the wilderness and that he overcomes it. That if you believe in him, that you too will also overcome your wilderness. God, right now as we come to you and we come to your table and we uh, eat of not your physical flesh, but of your physical, of your spiritual presence, of your manifestation here. Lord, help us to see that you don't lead us to the desert periods to punish us necessarily or to, uh, as an act of um, vengeance on our rebellion. But Lord, it's a constant reminder for us to eat and feast on the Word of God. Lord, I pray for those of us this morning who who struggle with doubt, who struggle with, uh, I don't know if this is true, or I don't know if reading the Bible has any efficacy in itself. I pray for those who have tried it over and over again and their minds can't focus or their thoughts are scattered, God. And it's hard for them to get up either in the morning or in the evening and they've tried over and over and they've failed and it feels like they're just setting themselves up for failure, God. I just pray that you would help them to persevere in the daily moments. Just a daily contact with you, God. And this morning as we take communion together, we say as a community that this is not your problem or just her problem or his problem, that this is all of our problem. We're a community. That we're journeying together through the different wilderness seasons. And we will bear burdens. Remind us, Lord, that as we take communion together, that we're doing it as a community and not separate. And so we do it to the glory of your name so that the gospel will be spread through our city and throughout the world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.